Please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24. We're going to go through the rest of this chapter and into the first verses of chapter 2 through verse 5. Colossians 1, verse 24. This is the reading of God's holy word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. In Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. A couple weeks ago, I met with our financial planner, and I was just learning more and more about what they do. And as I was learning more and more about what they do, I realized the big picture of their job, and that is to prepare us for our future, uh, to really look at our financial portfolio and to make sure we're okay for our future when we do retire one day. Well, as I thought about a meeting, that meeting with our financial planner, I also thought about my role as a pastor. And what is my role as a pastor? But it is to help you work on your spiritual portfolio. It is your eternal portfolio. And just as the financial planner met with us and, and they helped us to understand what kind of financial shape we were in, I want to ask you this question, what kind of spiritual shape are you in today? What kind of spiritual shape are you in right now in your life with Jesus? What does it look like? How is your relationship with Jesus right now? And how would you describe that relationship to me today? That is my primary role as a pastor. It is to help you be prepared for when you meet Jesus Christ in that heavenly encounter one day. Because all of us will die. And all of us will face judgment day. So as you look at the role of a pastor, the role of a pastor is to make sure to help you grow spiritually in Christ so that you are prepared when you have that heavenly encounter. That is what we see here from the words of the Apostle Paul. As he concludes first chapter, uh, the chapter one going into chapter two, he's talking a lot about his role as an apostle. And as we look at this passage today, uh, we're going to learn from him that the pastor's main calling is to, is to help believers grow in their faith by doing two things, by proclaiming Christ and by promoting community. By proclaiming Christ and by promoting community. As you look at the end of this chapter, especially verses 24 through 27, 
you'll see that Paul was referring back to his background of when he came uh, to faith in Christ and when he was called into ministry. When he came to faith in Christ, it was Acts chapter 9 when God got a hold of him. And he was persecuting Christians. He was slandering and, and ultimately killing Christians and giving approval for Christians to be killed. And Jesus changed his life. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me, Saul? And Saul became Paul. And in Acts chapter 9, we read these words. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. At that moment, Saul's life was never the same. He became Paul, and his primary role was to reach all people, particularly that of the Gentiles. Now, as we get to this letter of Colossae to the Colossians, we learn that most of the Colossians were Gentiles. So when Paul wrote this letter, he was writing to a a, a Gentile audience, and he was telling them, my role is to reach you for Christ, is to explain to you the mysteries of who Jesus is so that you can fully comprehend who he is, so that one day when you die and you meet him, you'll be prepared on that day. That's what he was getting at in verses 24 through 27. We see similarity or similar language when he wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus in in the book of Ephesians. He said this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is very similar language that Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus that he used in the, to the church of Colossae. And what he was getting at in both these letters is he was in prison, he was writing to these people uh, that were away from him, and he was reminding them that he, his primary role, was to proclaim Christ to them so that they would grow in maturity and in knowledge of who he is and who he was to them. So that was his main responsibility as a pastor. It was to proclaim Christ to the Gentiles and the mysteries of how Christ is the hope of glory for them. You see, the Gentiles throughout the ages, they were neglected. They did not know the gospel. There was only a a, a certain amount of people in the Old Testament. There were exceptions where Gentiles came to faith in the Christ to come. But as you read through the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, it was written primarily to the Jews, to God's people. When you get to the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, you see that the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, was extended throughout all the nations. And Paul, his primary role was to reach the Gentile people group so that they could fully understand Christ for the first time. Because before then, uh, they weren't reached. And now Paul was reaching them. And one of the primary ways, ways he was to reach them was to proclaim Christ. Now, there's two ways in which he proclaimed Christ to the Gentile people. It was through admonition, and it was through instruction. When you go to verse 28, he says these words, Christ him we proclaim, warning everyone. One of the main roles and responsibility of a pastor is to proclaim Christ. And the way in which we proclaim Christ is to warn everyone, it says. Warn everyone about him. Now, there's two things that 
Paul was talking about in this warning. The first thing he was warning them from was, was of the false teachers in their midst. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about this letter of Colossians and how there was a group of people who were coming inside the church and they were teaching heresy. And they were leading God's people, especially young believers, astray because they were teaching them false teachings. Paul was saying here, I'm warning you, Colossians, not to buy into the lies of all these heresies and all these false teachings that are in your midst. So he was warning them about the false teaching. He was also warning them about a future judgment day. As I mentioned a minute ago, all of us will die. And all of us will face a judgment day. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul said this about a judgment day. He said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. These are strong words from Paul. And what he's getting at is every single human being who's ever existed will face a judgment day. For all the things we've done, All the things we've thought, all the words we've said, all the things we've done, we will face a judgment day. Now, if you're new to Christ's covenant, we welcome you here and glad that you're visiting with us. We are a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. That's our denomination. It's the PCA. It's a conservative Presbyterian denomination. And our doctrine of faith comes from the Westminster Assembly. And the Westminster Confession of Faith, it describes the judgment day in, in this way, it says that God the Father has ordained a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom he has given all power and judgment. In that day, not only will the apostate angels be judged, but all the people who have lived on earth will appear before the court of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and be judged according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil." This is coming from 2 Corinthians 5, but what this statement is saying is, again, all of us will face a judgment day. And one of my primary responsibilities as a pastor, according to Paul, is to warn you, to warn everyone that that day is coming. That day is coming. And so what kind of spiritual shape are you in right now? How is your relationship with Jesus as we speak? 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter said it this way, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? Once again, we see another reference in Scripture about the day of the Lord. Jesus will return, and we all need to be prepared for that day. And when he returns, it will be a day of judgment. And so as Peter said, because of that, in light of that, we are to be people who live godly lives, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Paul, his primary role was to proclaim Christ by warning everyone. That's my job. That's all pastors everywhere throughout history's job is to warn you, warn you of false teachers so that you really know truth from falsehood. And the way you know that is Jesus. And as you understand the mysteries of who he is, you'll be able to 
compare that to the false teaching and say, wait, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like my faith. And you'll be able to withstand from that pressure of the false teaching. The other thing is, I got to warn you as a pastor that judgment is coming. It is coming. So we all need to be prepared for it. So proclaiming Christ is one of my main responsibilities, and that is to warn you of that day of judgment. But the other thing I am to do is I am called to teach you in the wisdom of Christ. Verse 28, Paul went on to say, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Notice he uses the word everyone again. He's not just saying, I'm going to teach the Jews. He's saying, I'm also going to teach the Gentiles. I'm going to teach children. I'm going to teach senior citizens. I'm going to teach all about Christ and the wisdom of who he is because there's so much mystery to him and there's so much we need to learn about him. That's what Paul was getting at here as he is called to instruct God's people, just as any pastor is called to do. A month before C.S. Lewis died, he wrote a letter to his daughter, Ruth. And do you know what he said to his young daughter? He said, Ruth, if you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you. And I hope you must always do so. If you continue to love Jesus and walk with him, nothing else will matter and nothing wrong will ultimately happen to you. Now, what he's getting at here is if you love Jesus, you will go through hardship. You will go through times of doubt and struggle and depression. But even in those times of hardship, you're going to make it. You're going to be okay. Why? Because you love Jesus. You have him. He's all you need. You don't need anything else but him. And so be content in Jesus. And so when troubles come and when struggles come and and when hardship happens, know that you're going to be okay. You're going to make it. Why? Because he's with you. He loves you. He's never going to leave you. He died for you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's the greatest act of love that anyone can give to give their life up for you, to take a bullet, take a beating, to bear a cross for you and for me. That's what Jesus did. And if you truly grasp that fact, that truth, if you truly embrace him, your life will never be the same and you're going to make it. Let's just be honest. I'm just going to be real. Life's hard. And a lot of you are going right now through the school of hard knocks. You need to be reminded of this truth this morning. That you're going to make it. And even if you are to pass tomorrow, you're going to be with him forever. To live as Christ, to die as gain, you got nothing to lose and everything to gain in Christ. And so you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay because Christ is with you. One author, he said it this way, if you believe that Jesus is eternal, if you believe that he's the creator of all things, if you believe that he holds all things together, which we talked about last week, if you believe he's the one who will reconcile the universe and redeem humanity to himself, if you believe he is the lover of your soul, despite the fact that life will be full of tr trouble, nothing much will go wrong. Your vision of Christ will shape your life 
What you believe about Christ makes all the difference in the world now and in eternity. What you believe about him makes all the difference in the world. So are you growing in knowledge of Jesus Christ? And if you're not, I encourage you today, pick up your Bible and start learning about him. Learn about how he lived. Learn about what he said. Learn about how he treated people. And you'll be blown away by the king of all kings. That's why Paul in verse 29, he said, for this work I toil, I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He says, to this end, I toil, I struggle, I labor so that you can know Christ and experience Jesus. You know, the words toil and struggle, it's interesting. The word toil is the word labor, and it denotes labor to the point of exhaustion. The word struggle is intensified beyond labor. The word struggle is where we get the word agony from. Agony. He agonized over these people. He struggled and toiled over these people that he didn't even meet. But he heard about it from his friend Epaphras. And notice, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What he's saying here is, I'm not doing this by my own effort. I'm doing this through his energy, through his power. The Holy Spirit is empowering me to work laboriously for you, to toil and to struggle so that you can know who Jesus is. Now, as I looked at verse 29... I thought about the role of a pastor. And unfortunately, in my day, I've met lazy pastors and I've met lazy missionaries. I have. I have. And it's really, it bothers me when I meet people who don't do their homework. And you can tell when they preach, it's like, man, they didn't do their homework. They didn't do their study. And it bothers me when people, you know, only work a few hours a week or a few days a week. You know, one comment I get from people, you'll laugh at this, but one comment I get from people outside of the church that have no idea what I do, I'll tell them I'm a pastor, and you know what they tell me? Oh, you work one day a week. You work on Sundays. That must be nice. You get to work just one day a week. And it's like, man, you have no idea. You have no idea. Now, you know, when you're in seminary, you think I get to teach all the time, I get to preach all the time. I spend maybe 30% of my job preparing messages and preaching. 70% of my job is managing a staff and talking to people and counseling and, and you name it. A lot of people don't know that when they go to seminary. Oh, I got to do all that too. Yeah, that's part of the job. But a lot of people have no idea when they go to seminary. They think, oh, I can just teach and preach all the time. Nope. Yeah, that's a big part of it. That's a huge part of it. Proclaiming Christ, that's a big part of our responsibility, but there's so much more. And so I just want to tell people, if, if you're going into ministry just to do these things, just to teach and preach, those are important. But you're, you're, and, and if you're going to be lazy, get out of ministry. It's not your calling. Get out, because there's so much more here. You know, as I was studying history and I studied pastors who lived before us, uh, Charles Spurgeon, he, he was known to read six books a week. Uh, he ended up having about 14,000 people that came in and out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle under his ministry. He founded a pastor's college. He started an orphanage. He wrote more than 140 books a, a week. He responded to 500 letters uh, per month. John Wesley, he would ride on horseback 60 to 70 miles a day 
He ended up preaching a total of 40,000 sermons, and he averaged about sometimes about 30 sermons a day. Uh, Alexander McLaren, uh, he, he, he was a pastor to uh, the blue-collar working class. This is fascinating. He would, he would notice a lot of the men in his church who would be getting up at 5 a.m. and putting on their work boots and going to work. You know what he would do? He would put on work boots when he would go to a study just to remind him of the people he was serving. Martin Luther, he worked so hard that many days he just simply fell into bed. D.L. Moody, one time at the end of his day, his bedtime prayer was, Lord, I'm tired, amen. You know, the work of a laborer is sweet. And you can, you can ask my wife, I mean, there are nights where I'll just put my head on the pillow and I'm out in 30 seconds. And it's a good feeling. It's a good feeling. And so again, just like Paul, every pastor is, is called to toil and to struggle with all the Lord's energy that he powerfully works within us to proclaim Christ uh, to everyone by warning them, by instructing them. So the second way in which we help you as pastors grow in spiritual maturity is not by just proclaiming Christ, but we also, we promote community. We promote community with each other. And this is where chapter two begins. Verses one through three, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What Paul is getting at here is he's saying, okay, look, I haven't met you face to face, but I'm hearing reports about you from Epaphras. We talked about that two weeks ago, but Epaphras was the one who planted this church in Colossae. Paul never went to it. When he wrote this letter, he was in prison. He he receives this report from Epaphras, and this report from Epaphras was the people of Colossians are are doing well. They're marching together in faith. They're on the same uh, goal and mission together, and they love Christ. But how did it get to that point? Well, Paul, he trained Epaphras, just as he trained Timothy and many, many others. So Paul's influence reached people that he didn't even get to meet in person. But that's the point he's getting at here. He's saying, I'm promoting community in that I may not get to you, but there's going to be other pastors that will get to you. And their job is to help you grow in spiritual maturity. You know, what I thought about when Paul wrote these words, I thought about William Carey. William Carey, he started the the modern world missions movement that we had today, that we have today. And William Carey, he had a heart for the people of India. He even made a globe out of leather back in the day, and it reminded him to pray for the people of India. Even though he had never met them, even though he never saw them, he had a heart for them. And he knew that this was a people group that wasn't reached. Finally, because he had prayed so much for this people group, he went And he started the modern world missions movement by going to India. Now, what did William Carey have? He had a world-class heart, a world-class heart for people he had never met before. In the same way, we're all called as believers to have a world-class heart for different people groups. And it may not mean that we go, and I'm not called to go on the mission field, but here's what my responsibility is. It's to help help people be equipped to go on the mission field. 
to support those who are called to go on the mission field and to support missionaries who are in the trenches doing the work. I'm just one person. But that's why it's so important to build up more and more pastors and missionaries so that more and more work can be accomplished. And that's what Paul was getting at here is one of the main responsibilities of a pastor is to equip other pastors, to train other missionaries, to to have more impact around the world. And, And that's what Paul was getting at. But he also said, not just do I equip other pastors, but I also equip members to work together to help each other grow in their spiritual maturity. Look back at verse two. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, being knit together in love. I was looking briefly this morning about what are some ways in which things can come together. Uh, You could freeze something together. You could melt something together. But notice the words that Paul used here. Knit together in what? In love. You can be knit together in love. What was Paul getting at here is? What was, what was Paul getting at? He was getting at the point that we as a Christian community must be knit together in love. If you want to learn more about Christ, if you want to grow in spiritual maturity, talk to each other. Talk to each other. Grow together in Christ. That's why we have so many Bible studies and small groups here. I started a new members class on Wednesday night, and one of the one of the guests that was in the class, he looked at the newsletter and he said, "Oh man, this is just a lot of stuff." You know, <laughs> he's like, "Which one do I choose?" I said, "Just choose one. Just get involved in one thing." But you really have no excuse when you come here. We got all kinds of Bible studies and small groups and Sunday classes. You name it. Jump into one. Get to know other people because. That's how you're going to grow. You're not just going to grow individually. You're not just going to grow here by listening to the preacher preach. You're going to grow by listening to one another, learning from one another, encouraging one another. And so please get involved in some kind of community so that you can grow in spiritual maturity from one another. You know, there are three things he mentions here in verses 2 through 4 about how Christian community will help you grow spiritually. The first thing it does is Christian community will help you assure you that Jesus is real and that he's alive. Notice how he said in verse 2, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. When you're knit together in love, you can assure one another that you are a Christian. You can remind each other of the good news of Christ. You can remind each other of all the promises that God gives us in the world. You know, all of us will go through a season uh, where we are spiritually dry. You know what I mean by that? Where we're struggling with our faith. We might be doubting our faith. We might be wondering, am I really a Christian? We might be wondering, is this Bible real? We might be wondering, did Jesus really come? And is he coming again? We might be questioning certain things. That's where Christian community is so important. Because when we begin to doubt things, we need to be reminded from each other that what we believe is true and that Jesus is real, that he is alive and he will never leave you, even in your, in your season of doubt. 
That's what Christian community does. It gives you a full assurance of the knowledge of who Jesus is and the wisdom of of Christ. But the second way in which Christian community can help us grow in our faith is it helps us to grow an understanding of who Jesus is. You know, I want to remind you that when Paul was writing this letter, he was writing to people who who were getting bombarded with false teaching. And this false teaching was saying that you need to believe in Jesus and you need to believe in other things. You need to believe in Jesus and you need to do certain things to have a richer, fuller spiritual experience. Jesus is not enough. You need Jesus and something. What Paul is getting at here is Christian community who love Jesus, they realize that you don't need anything but Jesus. All you need is Jesus. You don't need to add to him. You don't need to subtract from him. You need Jesus. Christian community will help you understand that, that Jesus is more than enough. And he's all you need. So don't buy into the lies that you need Jesus and something else, just as what was happening in in the days of the Colossians. Don't buy into that. Be reminded from one another that Jesus is more than enough. He's all you need. So Christian community, it helps us assure us that Jesus is real and alive. It helps us grow in understanding and knowledge of who he is. And the third thing Christian community does is it helps us from being easily misled from false teachings. As I mentioned, look again at verse four. I say this so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. One of the things that was happening in the days of the Colossians was you had this false teaching group that came in and they said, Jesus wasn't real. He was a ghost. He was a phantom. Because the Gnostics, they taught that anything in the body, anything physical was evil, that anything spiritual was good. So Jesus, there's no way he could have been a man in physical form because he would have been evil. That's false teaching. And what Christian community will do is it will help you remind each other that Jesus was here. Just as we're gonna have this video series of our group that went to Jerusalem, they got to see where Jesus walked. They got to see many of the miracles that took place of where he was when when that happened. Jesus was literally here. And sometimes we need to remind each other of that. Sometimes we need to be reminded that, yes, Jesus was here. And that will help us whenever we get this false teaching that comes in our midst that says, well, Jesus really wasn't here. He was like a ghost or a phantom. That's rubbish. Rubbish. So that's what Christian community does. It helps us from being easily misled from other teachings. As Paul finished up this section in verse 5, he said, For though I am absent from you in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. What is he getting at here? He said, Even though I'm away from you, I'm with you in spirit, and I'm rejoicing. I'm excited to hear about what God is doing in the church of Colossae. Because you are in good order and you are remaining firm in your faith. You know the words good order and firmness? They are military terms. And I get excited about this because I'm a military guy. I get excited about this because as you read these words, what happens here? He's saying good order is like you're marching together in order, accomplishing the same goal. 
And then he goes on to say not only good order, but he says firmness. Firmness was a military term where all the soldiers would gather together and they would put their shields up together. And any time a, a flaming dart would come, they would protect each other as they put their shields around one another. They would be able to withstand the attacks that were coming at them because of their shield. We, my friends, have the shield of faith. We have the shield of faith as our armory. And when we're together and we have our shields together, <laughs> nothing can stop us in, in Christ, right? We're together. And as the, as, the, as the flaming darts of the evil one are coming at us, we've got each other's backs. We've got the shields up. We can withstand the evil one and his accusations and his lies. We can also withstand false teaching when we have the shields around us. That's what Paul was getting at. He said, I am so encouraged, my brothers and sisters in Colossae, because you're in good order, you're marching together to Christ, and you're standing up against the false teaching around you. Keep it up. You know, there was an example. There was a group of people in Africa, and they were small people. They were known to be kind of small people, and they were called the pygmies. The pygmies were in Africa, parts of Africa, and Southeast Asia. One day, there was a young teenage boy, and he was standing over a dead rhinoceros. And this tourist was walking through this, uh, this native tribe of, of Africa and this jungle, and he, he sees this teenage boy over this ginormous rhinoceros. And he's scratching his head, and he's saying, did you kill this thing? And this little four-foot-ten little pygmy boy, he said, yeah, I did. And the guy's saying, this thing is like... 20 times your size. How did you kill this rhinoceros? And he said, I did it with my club. And the guy was just scratching his head. He said, with your club? He goes, how big is your club? And he said, well, there's about 100 of us in our club. <laughs> he said, oh, okay. <laughs> there was 100 of these little pygmies that took on this huge rhinoceros and they killed it. How did they do it? Well, they were together. And they were able to withstand the attacks of this rhinoceros. In the same way, my brothers and sisters, we're together. We're in this together, this, this thing called Christianity. We are Christians. We are here together to withstand the big rhinoceroses of the world. And when we're together, we can accomplish much more than individually. So if you were to ask me, what is my job description? It is to proclaim Christ by warning you and instructing you all about him. And it's also by promoting community. We can't do this alone. We need each other to grow spiritually. So that one day when we have our heavenly encounter with Jesus, he'll look at all of us as believers and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servants. Let's pray.